ability to determine which group you're in. Only two people. That means you can't determine what group somebody else is in. Only you can determine what group you're in, and only Christ can determine what group you're in. And the inside-outside and the inside-inside often look alike. They sound similar, and both believe in Jesus Christ. Last night, um, I went to my 50th class reunion. It was absolutely astounding to me how old those people were. <laughs> I'm sitting there, sitting there, and I go, wow, those people all look like they're at their 60th, and I look like I'm at my 40th. Um, <laughs> Um, but it, it was a lot of things just went through my head going through that um, because you, would, you relive stories which a lot of them I really didn't want to relive um, and, but yet you also realized how much impact some of these people had on your life you know when, you're, when you were in high school but the thing that amazed me, we're sitting at the table and we're talking and they're talking about this next generation, you know, who, who can't make a commitment. You know, this next generation, they're not, they don't make commitments, they're, they're you know, the, the millennials or whatever. And then I'm sitting there talking to them and one guy says, yeah, me and my girlfriend have been living together for five years. Another one says, yeah, we just moved in together. Another one said, you know, and I'm sitting there going, my gosh, half my class that were there have gotten a divorce and now they're just living together and they don't get that that's sort of like a lack of commitment. And they're complaining about a lack of commitment in other people, but they're unwilling to make a commitment to another person that says, regardless, I'm going to be there. And we see the same thing with people in their relationship with Christ. It's not a commitment that says, I'm all in. It's a commitment that says, it's convenient. And as long as Christ is convenient, I'm there. As long as this relationship is convenient, I'm there. One of the guys that I grew up with said, well, yeah, I've been divorced four times. He goes, each one lasts about five years. And he goes, and so I decided I'm not going to get married anymore. I just live with people. And I go, how many times have you done that? He goes, about two or three. And now he's living with another one. And, I, and I'm just thinking, don't you really see what you're doing? Don't you get it? Um... Then there was another couple that we were sitting next to who you could just tell they were all in. And, I, and I'll tell you so what happened. They're living in Ohio. They became Christians after they were married. About nine years after they got married, they became Christians. They both became Christians. Living in Ohio. And they're doing a Bible study in their home. Um, and there was just that. But they start telling their neighbors. You know, they were just asking because they got an opportunity to meet some of the neighbors. And their neighbors aren't believers. But their neighbors said, well, you're doing a Bible study? We've always been interested in the Bible, but we've never really wanted to go to church and we've never talked to anybody about the Bible. Could, could we come to your house and do the Bible study? 
And they said, sure. And these, the neighbors are like 20 years younger than them. And see, there is the difference. Am I willing to put my faith out there in such a way that it impacts those around me and I'm not ashamed of it and one person can say, yeah, you know what, we're just going to do a Bible study and if neighbors want to show up, we'll invite them and let them be a part. That's, that's sort of being all in. And the, the interesting thing, if you stood all of those people up, in fact, we got a picture of all of them, you would have no idea which ones are the Christians, which ones aren't, which ones are living together, which ones aren't, which ones are wholly committed to Christ, which ones aren't. They all look the same. And a lot of them, when you talk to them, would all act the same. But when it came down to push comes to shove, which ones are truly all in for Christ? Which ones are willing to say, no? Christ is first and foremost. Um, I had a professor at Oral Roberts University, a man named Dr. Farah. And he was just a phenomenal individual. And he was a Presbyterian. And, you know, at that time I was a Presbyterian too. In fact, come to think of it, I still am. Um, but he, when he was there, and he goes, all my life I was a Presbyterian. And I held on to the Presbyterian label. And I sort of identified myself. But then one day, I totally committed my life to Christ. And he goes, and all of a sudden there was a radical transformation. I was no longer a Presbyterian. I was a believer in Christ. I was a, a believer. He said, I always believed that Christ was a Savior. But for the first time, I now know he's my Savior. He's my Lord. Um, and then he said, it was alarming to me to think of all the joy I missed throughout my life by trying to live my Christianity on my power instead of living it on Christ's power. He also said it took his friends by surprise that they all of a sudden they saw this difference, but then they began to ask what was missing in their lives? If, if all of a sudden Dr. Ferrer had all this joy, what was missing in their lives? And he said people just started asking me questions about what's going on. Um, that's the difference between being all in for Christ and just trying to live the Christian life on your own power. Um, and today's parable really focuses on the difference between this real faith or this pretend faith or being all in or not being all in or being the wheat versus the tares. And it really is sort of a frightening analysis of the multitudes. And yet Jesus was just being realistic. He knew and said that not everyone who said, Lord, Lord, would enter the kingdom of heaven. Uh, in Matthew 7, 21. In fact, there were some who were plants of the evil one. That they were just plants of the evil one. So you take a look at the parable, starting in verse 24. The kingdom of heaven may be compared to a man who sowed good seed in his field. But while everyone was sleeping, the sower's enemy came 
clear message there that Christ has an enemy who wants to sow discord, who wants to sow weeds, who wants to sow problems, who wants to do whatever he can to destroy the good harvest of Jesus Christ. He sowed weeds among the wheat and went away. When the wheat sprouted, then the weeds also appeared. In those days, it wasn't uncommon, out of spite of revenge, to sow tares among an enemy's wheat crop. You know, you had your enemy there, and, and it was just out of spite. It was out of meanness. There was no reason. It wasn't going to help your crop, but you would just do it out of meanness. And, you know, it might be hard for us to understand that, but isn't that what computer viruses are? There's, there's just out of meanness, somebody puts a virus in a computer for the sake of affecting people, and there's no purpose in it. Just out of meanness. And that's exactly what the enemy does. Out of meanness, he tries to destroy God's crop. So in our own lives, out of meanness, the enemy wants to destroy that which is ever, whatever is growing healthy and good and Christ-like in you. Um, so as disturbing as that image may be, it gives us a real good understanding why no matter how much good seems to be sown in the world, we don't see any progress. We don't see any progress. You know, there could be all kinds of good sown in the world, but the world isn't changing to the degree that we might like to see. We do not see the progress. The parable explains why there is no perfect church. There is no totally pure church. No perfect family. No entirely responsible business or benevolent government. No matter what you have, if it's got humans in it, not only does it have wheat, but it also has tares. And because you have tares, nothing that we are involved in will ever be perfect. Now I know some of you said, hey, you've never been to my family. And you've never spoken to me. Because I've got this one. Um, but the reality is, they're just weeds among the wheat. Think about how many parents have labored to sow good seeds in their children, only to be stunned and heartbroken by sometimes what appears overnight. And sometimes the guilt or the shame that goes with that. But it has nothing to do many times with parenting it has everything to do that there is an enemy who is just mean. And all the enemy wants to do is to hurt, to destroy um, that which God has planted. Um, I can remember when Micah you know, sort of walked away. Um, and, you know, I carried tremendous guilt. To this day, I probably carry guilt. Um, and every time I do, Gwen says, get over yourself. You know, it's not you. you. Um, 
But that's sometimes what happens to us. So anyway, the owner's servants came to him and said, Sir, didn't you sow good seed in your field? I find that interesting. Okay, didn't you sow good seed in your field? Like, this is your fault. You know, and isn't that what we do with God? God, how come these things are happening? This must be your fault. You know. Um, another guy who I went to school with um, went to Harvard Divinity School. I mean, the guy is brilliant. I mean, I was sitting there talking to people at this reunion. They were got, like, got perfect scores on their ACTs and SATs. One person had like, could speak 12 languages. Another one was a nuclear physicist. Another one graduated from Harvard Divinity School. And I go, really? I got kicked out, you know. <laughs> but I'm sitting there talking to this one who's from Harvard Divinity School. And he has all the knowledge in the world. But he has no relationship. And he has no relationship. Because he can't reconcile wheat and tares. He said, if God's really a good God, it should all be wheat. He planted a good field, and there should be no tares. I didn't say those words, but that's what he was saying. And isn't that the way sometimes we respond? If God's a good God, it should just be all wheat, and we should have wonderful harvest, and there should be no tares, there should be no weeds, there should be no problems in our lives. And if there is, where's God? How come God didn't take care of this? So there are always those who wonder if the sower himself is not responsible for the field's condition. There are those who are simply mystified because they believe that the landowner is to be a sower of good seed, but they see the weeds nonetheless. So where did the weeds come from, they ask? The sower makes it clear what has happened. An enemy did this. Folks, the enemy is real. And sometimes we don't believe that. So the servant said to him, then do you want us to go and gather them? But he said, no, lest in gathering the weeds, you root up weed along with them. Let both grow together until the harvest. And at harvest time, I will tell the reapers, gather the weeds first and bind them in bundles to be burned. But gather the wheat into my barn. The disciples could hardly wait to get along with Jesus. And this is the beauty of this parable, is that you go through a couple of verses with another parable, and then he comes back and he gives the explanation of this one in verse 37. He said, the one who sows the good seed is the son of man, and the field is the world. And as far as the good seed, these are the sons of the kingdom, and the tares, the weeds, are the sons of the evil one. And the enemy who sowed them is the devil. And the harvest is the end of the age, and the reapers are angels. So just as the weeds are gathered up and burned with fire, so it shall be at the end of the age, the Son of Man will send forth his angels, and they will gather out of his kingdom all stumbling blocks and those who commit lawlessness. In the story, Jesus is telling the world there are some people that belong to him and some that don't. They exist together, side by side. They work together, they live together, they even go to church together. They may look exactly alike. And the Lord clarified that this was the world, that the field was the world. This is just the reality of what we live in. And that the owner of the field is God himself. The sower of the good seed was Jesus. The enemy was the devil. And then now the plot begins to intensify. 
because the good seeds were the true sons of the kingdom of God. Those are the good seeds. The tares, the weeds, are the evil ones. And notice how the metaphor has sort of shifted from Jesus planting seeds before. Jesus went out and sowed the seeds on solid ground, hard rock, you know, shallow soil, to now we are the seed. We are the seed. We are to be planted in the world. That's our job. We are to be planted in the world. Likewise, the devil plants his seeds among the Lord's seeds. So amongst us, there's going to be the enemy. But we are to be planted there. And so the question that focused on the disciples was, which kind of seed are you? Which kind of, are you the weed or are you the wheat? And that's really no less question that God asks each one of us. And if that wasn't enough, Jesus went on in his explanation. He said that we can identify the people who are terrorists by undeniable signs. In Matthew 13, 41, stumbling blocks and those who commit lawlessness. So the Greek word for stumbling block is scandalon. It means a stone or a, stip, uh, a, a, a snare that you would trip on. Anything that could cause a person to stumble. It also means anything that is offensive. And it was in the scripture, it was used for different purposes. But one of the things that we are told to be is not a stumbling block to others. And I find it interesting. People say, well, I can do whatever I want to do. Yes, you have freedom in Christ. That you can do what you want to do. But ask yourself, am I being a stumbling block to someone else? Am I being a stumbling block to somebody else's behavior? Because the selfish part of me says I can do what I want. The loving part of, says, of me says... But do I want to cause somebody else to stumble because of my behavior? And that's the difference. That's the law of love. That's when we have to decide. Um, but in Isaiah 8, 14 through 15, the righteousness and justice of God himself were identified as stumbling blocks for the people of Israel. So justice, the righteousness and justice of God were a stumbling block to the people of Israel. Why? Because the people of Israel wanted to live their own way. They wanted to live away from God. And whenever we want to live away from God, the same thing happens. God's word becomes a stumbling block. And so I've seen people in churches, when a pastor or a church decides to get all in, other people just say, I'm not going to be a part of that. Because God's calling them to a deeper level of commitment to a deeper level of faith, to a deeper level of understanding. And they're saying, no, I'm just going to go find some place that continues to tickle my ears so that I don't have to really have that kind of commitment. It seems ridiculous, but thousands, thousands of people attend church every Sunday all over the world, hundreds of thousands and they call themselves Christians, but never, ever have a deep abiding sense of joy because they've never made a commitment to Christ. They've never surrendered their whole lives to Christ. They've never said, I'm all in for Christ. And so they continue to go. They continue to experience. And finally, they just say, you know, I'm done. And they never let go. They never... Surrender because of their own pride. Their own pride. They can't acknowledge that they need God's love. 
that they need God's forgiveness, they need his grace, and they look and act like wheat, but are tares, and they become the dangerous ones in the church because when the church says, you know what, we're going to call people to a deeper level of commitment, oh, we can't do that. We've got to be user-friendly. That wouldn't be politically correct. We can't, we can't call people to discipleship because we might lose people. And we'll see churches that will just die. Because instead of following through with their commitment to Christ, they continue to try to appease the world. They'd never make that final commitment. I talk to people all the time who never fully surrender their whole lives in total dependence on Christ. They continue to live on their own strength and their own efforts, trying to get by on talent and moral goodness, and they miss it. Um, in fact, for many to become a Christ, become a believer in Christ, it just sort of messes with their self-image. Because they're pretty much confident that I can handle all this by myself. And I've built myself up. I've gone to all the self-esteem classes that I can possibly go to. I've got a wall full of all my self-esteem stuff. And then you're telling me that none of that matters? That the only thing that matters is Christ-esteem? Forget that. I'm holding on to my diplomas. And I'm instead of really saying, no, it's going to be Christ and Christ alone. So tares become wheat when we realize our insufficiency and invite the Lord to take charge of our lives. The second designation of the nature of the tares was lawlessness. And again, let's be sure that we understand what lawlessness means for a Christian. For many people, God is an absentee landlord. You know, okay, I made a commitment to God, but he's just sort of an absentee landlord. I can just go to live on my life. Um... And so lawlessness is really just sort of living life by our values um, instead of on God's values. It's putting our moral filter above God's moral filter. We make decisions, we, we are lawless when we make decisions about what we will do and be without prayer, wise counsel, God's word. It's possible to be a respectable church member without ever consulting God about anything that you're doing in your life. People will make all kinds of major life decisions, never, never consulting God about those. Um, we all know Christians whose value system is completely dominated by world standards, or today, by political parties. I find it interesting that we make decisions based on political party not on scripture. Um, and so we'll sit there and we become um, a parliamentarian government instead of a democracy. We just vote for parties. And the party that we're most aligned to, that's who we vote for. Instead of saying, wait a second, this is what the scripture says. How, why, why am I not making decisions based on scripture instead of based on parties. I find it interesting. I've been driving around. I don't know how many of you have seen um, Kane for Sheriff. When I went into the primaries, I couldn't vote for Kane because I had to declare a party. And if I declared a Republican, I couldn't vote for Kane in the primary. 
why in the world is a sheriff a political party? And yet that's how our whole system is now. If you're a Democrat, you can vote for this person. If you're not, and the, the coroner, who cares if you're a Democrat or it's a dead person, you know? Does it really need what political party is, whether or not you're going to take care of them? And if, if, if you're a Republican and you get arrested by a Democratic sheriff, are you going to jail? I mean, what difference should that make? But all decisions now in our country are made based on political party, not upon the scripture. Not, a part, not upon what does the Bible say about caring for people? What does the Bible say about feeding the hungry? What does the Bible say about caring for the poor? What does the Bible say about justice? What does the Bible say about love? What does the Bible say about forgiveness? What does the Bible say about evangelism? What does the Bible say about being all in? And so decisions, I just went on a rant. I'm sorry about that. Anyway, what people believe is controlled by ideas ingrained by culture. It just, it was the people I was with the other, last night. Uh, more devastating, what they believe to be possible denies among people who aren't inside, denies any supernatural intervention from God. All workings of God have to be logical, have to be ones that we can do on our own, and we don't believe in the possibility. Instead, we believe that if it's impossible, God can't do it. Instead of saying, no, you know what? Our limits are just opportunities for God to show us what he can do. And that's why I think a lot of churches lack vitality. They lack any kind of daring. They, last, they lack any kind of excitement. Because instead of saying, God could do this, we say, God can't do this. And when we say, God can't do this, that's how we live. We live as if God can't do anything. I would never invite my neighbor to church because my neighbor would never go. God could never touch their hearts. I would never want to invite my neighbor to a Bible study because I know my neighbor wouldn't want to go to a Bible study because why, why would they? And we don't believe that God could touch the hearts of another person in such a way that they just may be hungering for somebody to say, love me, teach me, show me, care for me. And I just need somebody to do that. And God said, that's us. And we say, yeah, but nobody would ever want it. Nobody would ever listen to me. Nobody would want to do that. Um, I got to tell you, I spoke in front of a whole bunch of people, and what did you say? About 50% of them said they were going to be coming to church? We left this whole aisle. <laughs> But the point is, you just continue to let people know who you are and to provide that opportunity. We can be channels of Christ or we can be channels of the enemy. And until we yield to Christ, that he becomes the vital nerve center of our lives, the Lord of our life, we have the potential of being tares. And again, that explains the impotence of the church in our time. It just has no power. And the hope of the parable is that we are to cultivate the weed. This morning, Gwen goes, what are we preaching on? And I told her, and she goes, she gets through it. She goes, you know what I don't like about this parable? And I go, no, what don't you like? 
She goes, it's like it's set. There's wheat and there's tares. There's no chance for the tares to become wheat. It's just, it's all the way to find there's going to be tares. And that's it. And I go, yes, and that parable. But if you take the whole counsel of the scripture, it says that these tares can become wheat. Otherwise, we wouldn't have evangelism. Otherwise, we wouldn't have had Christ come to die on the cross, to, to sacrifice his life. So that we as wheat are to continue to be a witness to tares, so tares too can become wheat. It's so easy to lose sight of the purpose and focus of the church. God has not called us to moral rearmament. He has not called us to clean up our culture. He has not called us to make this world a better place in which to live. Hear that. That's not why he's called us. We sometimes get caught up in all those causes thinking that's what God has called us to. Individually, we can do that. We can do whatever we can to help others. But the focus of the gospel of Jesus Christ is to call people out of the world and into the kingdom. That's the focus. That that's our primary focus. Now, it's much easier to get into a social cause than it is to knock on your neighbor's door. It is much easier to join a march than it is to just talk to a person at work and say, you know, Christ can make a difference. But that's what we were called to do. The called out ones, the ecclesia. As people, we are called out of the world into righteousness of God's kingdom. And as people do that, the world will be changed. But we must stay focused on what is possible. Winning people for Christ, not changing the world. And as we win people for Christ, they will continue to win people for Christ. And as they win people for Christ, the world begins to, to change. Um, J. Vernon McGee said, God did not call me to clean up the pond. He called me to fish out of it. You know, it's just sort of a good point. It's, and we want the pond clean before we're going to fish in it. Um, in the final judgment Jesus said the weeds will be separated from the wheat uh, the weeds all those who do evil and cause sin will be thrown in the fire he's talking about hell eternal separation from God that is what he's saying but then in verse 43 he says then the righteous will shine like the sun in the kingdom of their father and that's God's plan for every believer. God's plan for every believer. Right now we may struggle with weeds. But that won't stop us from becoming wheat. Weeds are an inevitable fact of life. But he made you to be wheat. Last year I was sitting out on my deck. And I was just sitting there. And a wasp came up and stung me. I did not do a single thing wrong. I was just sitting there, minding my own business, just having a cup of coffee, enjoying the backyard, and got bit by a wasp. Now, that really shouldn't surprise me, because that's what wasps do. They just go along, looking for somebody to sting, and if you're in the way, boom, you're it. 
That's the way our world is, folks. You may not be doing anything wrong, but all of a sudden you're going to get stung. And we should not be surprised because that's what evil does. That's what wasps do. Snakes bite, mosquitoes bite, flies bite, all those things out there. They're, it's a vicious world out there. Um, but we should not be surprised. But in the end, it says the righteous will shine like the sun in the kingdom of their father. And who are the righteous? Who are the righteous? This shouldn't be a trick question. If the, if the Gaddises were here, they would tell you immediately who the righteous are. Any believer. It's in Christ that we have been called righteous. So if we are believers, we have been called righteous. That's God's plan for us. Again, right now we may struggle with weeds, and they're an inevitable fact of life, just like wasps. Um, but he'll see us through the harvest until you become what he made you to be. His child, filled with righteousness, that you shall shine like the sun in his kingdom. And that's just a beautiful picture in the midst of everything else that goes on. You will shine like the sun in the kingdom of the Father. Now that's a picture that you should be able to hold on to. Much better than being a weed. Father, I just praise you and thank you for this day. Thank you for the opportunity that we have to come together to worship, to celebrate, to recognize all that you've done for us and that all you will continue to do for us. And Lord, I just ask that you continue to minister to us and through us, that we can experience the fullness of your love, your grace, your power, that in the midst of this world, we truly can be wheat, that we can be all in, that we can be your witness, that we don't focus on the impossible, but we begin to focus on possibilities in you. That we don't put up our own barriers of why we can't do something, but we trust you to open up doors that in the past have been closed. So, Father, I just ask that you continue to minister to me, through me, that I can have an impact on others. It's my prayer in Christ's name. And all God's people said, Amen. One last story.